Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Sarah Jacobs. And I'm Alan Murabayashi. Alan, we talk a lot about copyright on this show. And this is a copyright case that came up this week that involves some pretty heavy hitters, which is Andy Warhol. Heard of him. Glenn Goldsmith and Prince, the musician. <laughs> not the appropriation artist. Not Right, not to be confused with other copyright uh, cases. So in 1981, Newsweek hired photographer Lynn Goldsmith to photograph Prince, the musician, um, which at that time he was an up-and-coming musician who was still, you know, years away from releasing his seminal Purple Rain album. Um, Goldsmith's portraits never ran, but she obviously did own the copyright. Keep that copyright. Oh man, keep that copyright. This is this is a good lesson in that. In 1984, Vanity Fair licensed one of the images as an artist reference, then commissioned Andy Warhol to create an illustration based on the photo for a piece entitled Purple Fra- Fame, in appreciation of Prince at the height of his powers. After Warhol created that illustration, he then went on to add an additional 15 artworks based on Goldsmith's photo uh, in a series which is known as the Prince series. And upon Prince's death in 2016, the Warhol Foundation licensed the Prince series for use in a Condé Nast tribute magazine, and one of those images that was based on Goldsmith's photos was used on the cover. Hmm. Now, Lynn tried to extract a licensing fee because, after all, it's her photo. And the Mm -hmm. foundation... By her telling, they were close to a a resolution, but then the foundation accused her of a shakedown and filed a preemptive lawsuit in 2017. They were seeking a declaratory judgment to say that Warhol didn't infringe her rights and that Warhol's art was transformative or otherwise Mm. protected by fair use. In 2019, Judge John G. Coltel ruled against Goldsmith in U.S. District Court stating that the artwork is, quote, immediately recognizable as a Warhol rather than as a photograph of Prince. Goldsmith appealed the decision and it was sent to the second court of appeal. So then fast forward to this week, March, of t- March 25th, 2021, The second court of appeals reversed the 2019 judgment by weighing four factors of the fair use doctrine as outlined in section 107 of the Copyright Act. And it found that each favors Goldsmith, which rules. (laughs) This is a a pretty big deal, you know, because because these these four factors are the ones that you're supposed to judge the merits of a fair use on. And, And it's not always that the infringement falls under all four factors. But in this case, the second court of appeals says each favors Goldsmith. This is a big deal. Mm. And the court disputed the notion that Warhol's works were transformative enough, I guess is the implication, to be considered fair use. Um, and maybe more significantly, the, four, the, the court was very specific about Fair use, they said, fair use when properly applied is limited to copying by others, which does not materially impair the marketability of the work which is copied. And in this case, Goldsmith works in the editorial world. Mm -hmm. The Warhol Foundation tried to use this appropriation art on the cover of a magazine in an editorial fashion. And so Mm. the court said, you can't do that, basically. Mm. It's a big deal. Um, but I will say that this does not mean, you know, as with all law, law, lawsuits, most lawsuits, the scope is fairly narrow. 
The court is not saying that appropriation art is illegal. And in fact, it did make a distinction to say that the, the realms in which Warhol uh, floats and the realms in which Goldsmith floats, you know, museums and art galleries versus editorial work and commercial work are different. But mm. when Warhol infringes upon the area in which Goldsmith works in, it's, it's a problem. That's copyright infringement and there's no fair use there. I see. So what is Goldsmith? What, what is she, what is she going to get? So <laughs> what she get out of this yeah, deal? That's a good question. So there's a couple things that, that happened at this point, to my understanding. The first is that the Andy Warhol Foundation said that they're going to appeal the decision. Now, when they appealed the decision, there's only one court left in the land that can hear that. And that is the Supreme Wait. Court of the United States. Wow. Okay. And the Supreme Court gets to decide which cases it hears and which cases it doesn't. So not totally clear, you know, I'm sure the foundation will file because it's in their economic interest to do so, but it's not necessarily clear that the court will take up uh, uh, the case. Mm -hmm. it, the, Goldsmith winning the case, from my understanding, does mean that she can now pursue the copyright infringement for monetary damages. Okay. So that's not an impediment anymore. So I assume we're going to see maybe a dual track uh, where Goldsmith proceeds with a copyright infringement for statutory damages because it is registered. Her image is, is, is registered. And, and I assume that the Warhol Foundation will try to take it to the Supreme Court. I found it interesting that originally Vanity, Vanity Fair uh, licensed the image from Goldsmith for just $400, which I, I kind of felt like back in the 80s, you would think it'd be a higher price. But Yeah, I mean, I guess they knew that they wanted to use it as that artist reference. And so since mm -hmm. it wasn't the direct image, then perhaps it's discounted. I mean, $400 is, I don't know, I'm going to guess it's probably like $1,500 today. Mm -hmm. So it's not terrible for an editorial licensing fee. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. Fair. <laughs> the, the, the one thing that, that will be remain to be seen, you know, we have this, this very important case called Carry You versus Prince and not Prince the musician, but Richard Prince, the appropriation artist. And in that case, this same court, the second court of appeals, ruled that 25 of the 30 images in question were deemed sufficiently transformative. And if you remember the images from that case, it was Carrie's Rastafarian images and Prince would like white out the eyes and he'd put like a purple box over the hand. And the mm. court, and it's for, for 25 out of the 30 of those images, the court was like, yeah, that's sufficiently transformative. It's commentary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This Goldsmith case doesn't overturn that decision. And in fact, the court actually referenced their own decision in that case. Saying like, oh, really? this is an example of it being transformative enough. And the Goldsmith stuff, you know, it, it looks like Warhol literally like traced the, the, the photo. <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at it and he did. Yeah. That said, I, I still am, I mean, now I didn't study law, but I still am mad at why they would be like, oh, but, but Prince, the appropriation artist, can do what he did to the Rastafarian photographs. Um, and it does make me wonder if because it is Prince the musician that is pictured, if that like, you know, changes the outcome in any way. Well, I will say that there is a current lawsuit against Richard Prince, the artist, for his new portrait series, which are those Instagram images. Mm -hmm. And it'll be very interesting to see whether the interpretation of the Goldsmith case affects this pending lawsuit. 
Yeah. Because these decisions yeah. are precedential, right? They're going to look at these key decisions by the second court of appeals and say, okay, well, you know, did it infringe upon the, the commercial uh, and resale and the licensability of these images? Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and again, with those, with those Instagram prints, it's, it's well-known faces that he's appropriating, right? It's celebrities um, yeah. that he's, that he's using. So I don't, I mean, yeah, I just wonder if that's a factor. It, it's always, you know, the more that I kind of look into copyright law and I guess the law in general, I guess the layperson tends to generalize all of these outcomes and then the lawyers yeah. will always say no, but you have to understand the specifics, the the fact pattern of this case, um, and understand why it's important for a certain style of usage for a certain class of of people. I would encourage photographers to kind of read up uh, on this case, and and the the opinion is available online. It's sixty five pages, so it's not it's not you're not going to breeze through it right away. But it did does, you read through most of I it? I did read through most of it. And, and you know, some of the things that they, they said, you know, one of the key things that they kept coming back to was like, in the world of movies, it's well hmm. known that you license a book, for example. And even though the director and the screenwriter and, you know, the, the actors, et cetera, they, they can materially change the story, but it doesn't absolve them of the responsibility to license the source material. Mm. And that was referenced over and over again in the opinion. And when you, again, like when you're looking at it from that point of view, you're like, yeah, of course. Like a book is sold to consumers. Movies are sold to consumers. So you're talking effectively about the same type of usage and the same potential economic damage to that author, the original author. So that totally makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, I should also point out that, that Lynn Goldsmith created a GoFundMe uh, for her oh, to defray she? her legal costs. And as you can imagine, if you go to the Supreme Court, there's a lot of legal costs. And <laughs> I, would, I would put out there that f- a lot of photographers will benefit from this judgment and maybe we'll ought to consider donating to her fund. We'll have that oh, link on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Well, it's finally happened, Sarah. Today on March 29th, as we record that huge shipping vessel in the Suez Canal has finally been freed after almost six days being trapped. And I will say there were some, there were some fantastic images coming out of that coverage and some very funny memes that also <laughs> emerged. Uh, I will say, you know, one of the iconic, if you will, images actually came from the Suez Canal Authority, distributed by the AP and some other wire services. And we found a link in the Atlantic of this little earth mover, tiny earth mover next to the, you know, this largest class of ship ever created. And it just gives you a sense of the size and scale and what the, I guess what the river banks or the canal banks look like in, in Egypt. It, it's kind of stunning. This is really a remarkable story that you really do need photographs in order to understand what was happening. Because, you know, you hear about, oh yeah, there's a boat trapped in a canal. What? Like, what does that, <laughs> right. what does that even mean? How, how, I can't even picture what that would be like. Oh, oh, the boat's real big. I get it. <laughs> you, you need, you need the visual. It actually took me about two days to figure out that it was actually in the Suez Canal and not the Panama Canal, because I've watched documentaries <laughs> on the Panama Canal and, you know, they have a lock system and there's like walls. So I couldn't figure out how oh. it ran aground. But of course, when you're looking at the Suez Canal and, and there's a bunch of satellite pictures 
by the company Maxar. And you're like, wow, that boat is really big. And it's right. literally diagonally embedded across the canal. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it took 14 tugboats um, conducting, like pulling maneuvers from three different directions in order to get it unstuck. Um, and they had to move 27,000 metric tons of sand in order to move it. They also needed the moon in order to help move <laughs> right. it because the moon created a higher tide, which for some reason helped them do it. And they still don't even know what exactly made it be stuck, which blows my mind. They're not sure if it was because of heavy winds or if it was a technical or a human error. It's looking like it was a human error though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause a bunch of other ships made it through. Now I saw a bunch of map style illustrations of where the boat was located in the in the Suez Canal and I was like oh that's interesting it's pretty close to the southern mouth of of the of the canal um, but then I saw a photo an aerial photo taken by Mahmoud Khaled and it blew my mind in terms of how close to the mouth that ship was but also mm. the scale of the size of that ship relative to all the other tankers that are waiting to get yeah. through the canal. It's a stunning yeah. photo. And again, like it's, it wasn't communicated in the same way when you're looking at a map or an illustration of the situation. Mm -hmm. I know this really gives you context into like, it was almost there, but didn't reach it. Didn't <laughs> no. reach the end. <laughs> This meme that was being passed around a lot through Twitter, and I saw a lot of friends sort of repost it on, on, in, in their Instagram stories, is, you know, this couple lying in bed. And the a woman, stock photo, yeah, stock of photo. The woman's kind of looking over her shoulder to the guy, and the text <laughs> says, I bet he's thinking about other women. And the guy who's sort of looking into the distance away from her, uh, the text for him says, I just don't get it. The boat doesn't look that stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I got to be honest, oh, I, that, I've been thinking about the boat for, you know, nearly a week, <laughs> thinking like, how is this possible? And, you know, they're, they're, they were talking about, you got to take the boat out carefully because if you, if you move it too quickly, it'll flex and, you know, shred the hull in half. It wasn't designed oh, to be stuck in the mud. Like, we have no conception of the scale and the weight and, you right. know, the, the, how, how strong the ship is and what it's designed for. It, it's really been... A, a very interesting education in, in global shipping and all of these other factors that that ferry equipment around. Totally. Amanda Mole from The Atlantic, uh, which you link to and we'll link to on the blog, um, just had a, a wonderful write-up about how she just can't stop thinking about the ship being stuck and how she talks to her therapist about it <laughs> and how it really has opened up her mind about global uh, shipping and how that works logistically. It's a fantastic write-up. Great photos all around. This week, art buyer Daniel Wolf passed away. He had a phenomenal life um, and one of the most notable things that he did was over the course of two years uh, in the early 80s, he quietly amassed 25,000 classic and contemporary photographs for the Getty Museum out in California. When the collection was announced in uh, July of 1984, it basically transformed the museum into a leading center of photography and kind of signaled to the art world, hey, this is a thing. <laughs> it also helped raise the prices of photography because he had amassed so much for the Getty. It's pretty astonishing to consider 
that he was able to do this so quietly. I mean, I, I don't think you'd be able to accomplish that now because of electronic communications and electric, electronic records. Um, and of course, photography is much more popular. Um, mm. But, you know, I guess the equivalent would be, you know, imagine someone amassing all of the NFTs, all of the NF, important NFTs without anyone else knowing, mm. and then opening a museum around it. It, it, it shows such foresight and sort of determination of a specific vision. Now, when I was reading the obit, I also learned, because I didn't know this, that his wife was Maya Lin, who designed the Vietnam War Memorial while she was an undergrad at Yale and is a very, very well-known uh, artist who's done stuff all over the world and continues to d- design uh, things today. So a- an amazing Man. family. I know. Talk about a power couple. Daniel had studied photography under Minor White at Bennington College, um, and the obit also talks about how he would buy old photographs at Parisian markets when he would be on vacation with his parents, and then he'd go back to Manhattan and sell them on the steps of the Met to tourists uh, and other New Yorkers. And at just 27, he opened his own gallery, the Daniel Wolf Gallery in Manhattan, Um, And at that time, it was one of the few galleries that was showcasing photography. So he was a real pioneer. I loved what they said about the gallery being this really social space. It wasn't just about Mm. putting photos on the wall, but it became like a hangout place for the photo community. Um, Totally. And, you know, if you've been to New York galleries in the past, you know how sterile and how uninviting they tend to be. So I can't imagine (laughs) what this was like in the the mid-80s. So Rip, Daniel Wolf. We talked about photojournalist John Moore before because he's been covering the migrant crisis on the border of Mexico and the U.S. for over a decade. And last week he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about photojournalists not being able to accompany the Border Patrol anymore under the Biden administration, which is which is pretty interesting, right? Because we had this idea that mm-hmm. Biden was going to restore all of this normalcy. But in fact, the Biden administration, uh, as of the writing of his piece was being the most restrictive of any administration insofar as covering the border crisis was concerned. That's right. Um, Most of you are probably familiar with Moore's work. He took that famous photograph of the crying little girl that was looking up at an adult while being taken away uh, by Border Patrol. It's a really striking image, and it ran everywhere. It went viral. Um, his his work and the work of other photojournalists that are covering this is obviously extremely important. So it's, I mean, it caught my eye. It's definitely alarming that he is no longer able to work next to Border Patrol documenting what they're doing. He also published a book in 2018 entitled Undocumented Immigration and the Militarization of the U.S.-Mexico Border that includes a lot of the work that he he created over the years. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. We'll have that link on our, our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. I got an email from Sue Morrow, who's the editor over at the NPPA for their news photographer magazine. Unfortunately, they announced that the current issue, which features this brilliant image that David Burnett took, a National Guardsman looking up in the Capitol Rotunda and sort of awe at the beauty of the space, Uh, following the insurrection on January 6th. Um, This particular issue will be the last printed issue of the NPPA News Photographer magazine. There had been discussion over the years about the cost, uh, whether people were still consuming it, um, and whether it made sense to just put everything online. And so they're finally going in that direction of of putting 
things online, um, and they're going to do a whole website redesign around that. It's always nice to see photos in print, but a lot of these organizations are suffering from flagging membership. They're, they're really looking at the ways that the organization can have better ROI on their expenses, and a printed magazine is really expensive to produce. Totally. It'll be really interesting to see where they go from here with this um, focusing more online. Yeah, they have committed to continue to publish their annual photojournalism uh, roundup publication. So uh, we'll be able to see that in print. Um, and I look forward to that every year. So at least we have that as uh, something to put on your bookshelf. Alan, I have, I have bad news. What's that? You have to delete Dispo from your phone. Wait, I just put it on my phone like two weeks ago. I know, me too. I did because you sent me the invite and I was like, <laughs> I was like, awesome. Yes, we're going to be on Dispo. Uh, no, no, we have to delete it. Uh, one of the co-founders, David Dobrik, who was a YouTube star. For the uninitiated, Dispo was this hot new app, hot new photo app. And the, and the shtick was when you took a photo, it didn't actually show up on your phone until the next day. And you could create shared albums. So it was partially social, but it was also this, this throwback to analog film days where you'd have to wait for images to be developed. I was trying to keep an open mind about it personally, but I never really saw the appeal because why wait when you have digital? That's all, you know, one of the, the great benefits of digital is being able to see it immediately. News broke earlier this month um, by an investigation over at insider.com detailing sexual assault allegations against a former vlog squad member of which David is a part uh, led by many viewers to angrily reevaluate Mr. Dobrik's work and their fandom that was reported by the New York Times Taylor Lorenz. He has since stepped down from the app. I'm still (laughs) still want to delete the app. You, you do or you don't? <laughs> I still want to delete the app. I mean, Dobrik aside, like, I don't think it's a very well thought out app, but yeah, it yeah, does yeah, make yeah. me incredibly suspicious about these, like, you know, not to be ageist, but these 20 something quote influencers, mm-hmm. right? Who gain massive followings as teenagers and think they're the hottest thing in town mm-hmm. and act in like these really immoral ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember with the, all that press that came out around Dispo, nothing sort of ref- referenced the vlog squad's thorny past. Mm. Like the PR machine was so into the like, oh, this YouTube creator guy, he's all young and this is the new thing. This is the new clubhouse. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the guy's only 24. Super young. He looks like he's 30. He looks terrible. <laughs> 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 Not to base it on looks. I'm just saying it looks like he's I see had a it. hard life. You know what I'm no, saying? No, I know. I, it's, it is confusing that he's 24. <laughs> like that shocks me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will. I will gladly delete it. I took I took two photos with it. One of my cat and one of some uh, mugs that I own. And honestly, I wasn't impressed with either photo. <laughs> and I didn't want to blame myself. I wanted to blame Dispo for that. Blame the app. So, blame the app. Well, it's a good yeah. reason to delete it. It is. It is a worthy, worthy reason. Hey, Sarah, as we round out this episode, I just wanted to mention that it's actually our 100th episode. Oh, my God. 100. And I don't, you know, I'm not big into the numerology of things, especially the numerology of a podcast, because after all, it's just a podcast. <laughs> but I guess it means we survived much of the pandemic. And I guess it means yeah. that we've been around for nearly two years. 
Yeah, that's that's true. We're all, we're basically we're at the two year mark. That's pretty cool. That's, that's pretty, pretty cool, Alan. Well, con- congratulations on it. Oh, thank you. Congrats too. Everything that we've talked about today, you can find the links on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. If you have something to say, you can tweet at us at Photoshelter. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Photoshelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.